Welcome to Give and Take, where yours truly, Scott Jones, interviews artists, activists, authors, and a wide array of other thought leaders that help make our world the interesting place it is. My guest today is Emma Green. Emma is a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she covers politics, policy, and religion. She recently did a video piece for The Atlantic's website, tackling the question, why doesn't the Democratic Party take religion seriously? I'm going to ask her about that today, along with a host of other things. I give you Emma Green. Emma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. You're, it's my pleasure. I want to ask you about so many things, including and especially why Democrats should pay attention to religion and why they're not. But first, I want to know, you went to Georgetown, no? I did, yeah. And you were a George F. Baker scholar. That is also correct. I see you've been scouting my LinkedIn page or something. <laughs> I, did. I found a write-up about you on the Georgetown website, which is very... Oh, that's funny. It's very flattering. And... Did you did you grow because you write a, a lot about religion and religious identity and its intersection with politics and public policy? Did you grow up in a particular religious tradition? Um, I did. I uh, grew up in the Jewish tradition um, in Tennessee. And you went to Georgetown. I did. Yeah. So, does anybody ever call you for a focus group? Like, hey, we're looking for Jews from Tennessee that grew up in Tennessee that went to Catholic colleges in the Northeast. <laughs> uh, you know, the group is probably bigger than you would guess. I've met expatriates from Tennessee who have gone to all sorts of different kinds of religious schools, but I am sure that I would be a great candidate for that focus group were anybody to ever have that particular constellation of interests and demographic needs. <laughs> now, you got a fellowship at the Atlantic after graduating, right? And you just, you stayed there. That's right. The New York Times, no one tried to woo you, Cosmo, uh, Salon. You know, up until now, I've not had any conversations with Cosmo, but life is long and surprising, so. It could happen. It could happen. Mm-hmm. Now, you, why did you want to write about religion and religious identity and its connection to politics and policy? What what kind of, I mean, I know you're a government major, but what, were you, did you, did you grow up in an observant religious home? Uh, Yeah, I did. And I think for me, it's a combo of a few things. It was background, it was study, but it was also when I got to the Atlantic, finding that focusing on religion was a really interesting way of being able to write stories about a lot of different aspects of life, from politics to the economy to popular culture. And over time, it's developed into a beat of sorts, although I'm on the domestic politics team, so I write about more than just religion. Um, And I, I... Personally, I think it's the greatest beat out there because it has so many different aspects and also cuts to the heart of people's most closely held beliefs and desires and practices and life questions. Beat's got to be one of the sexiest journalistic terms. Like I'm picturing you like at the end of the day, like you're at some like hip bar that's just, you know, kind of dark and you're with other journalists like drinking whiskey with ice and and swapping like tips and sources and stuff. Is it, is it like that? 
Um, no, not at all. I would say that the number of days where I end up at a hip bar at the end of the day is vanishingly small and probably the whiskey with ice doesn't go over so well, uh, especially when you're trying to do, do good work or file on deadline the next day. But, um, it certainly is fun to be in DC with a community of journalists who I really admire, especially on the religion beat, who are wise and extremely good at their jobs and who I love reading. And insofar as the religion beat, some people call it the God beat, is small but tight. Um, I've really enjoyed getting to learn from the other writers at other publications who do this kind of work. Have you ever been pressured to like give up a source? Like, tell us who that Jesuit was. Tell us who it was. Um, It seems like you could probably write a movie plot or two because you've got the great uh, drama fantasies of journalists down pat, what journalists wish their lives were like. But in actuality, uh, it's not nearly so glamorous. I mean, you know, look, every journalist has to be careful about how they handle sources, has to be respectful. That's one of the most important jobs of parts of the job. But most of my work is talking to normal people, is talking to professors, it's talking to people out and about in the world, it's talking to pastors. And those are folks who are sharing their life experiences, sharing what's going on in their communities, what they're worried about, what they're happy about. Uh, and, you know, it's not that those people don't require top secret protection. It's more that it's uh, it's a different kind of thing than, you know, standing in the Watergate garage, trying to find out top secrets about the president from uh, a secret official within the intelligence community. <laughs> now you recently did a video piece for the Atlantic website about why Democrats don't take religion seriously or don't seem to be now full disclosure. I'm a Democrat and I'm actually in my day job, a pastor of a church. Oh really? I, what, what kind of church? It's non-denominational. And although it's sort of, it, it would feel, I mean, we celebrate communion weekly. We have a, Almost like a kind of traditional liturgy, but, you know, we just have like one guitar and I, you know, I, I'm in my early forties. I'm like one of the oldest people there and I uh-huh. never wear, I never wear anything but jeans usually. Um, so Do you have a of, smoke machine? No, but you know what? It's like, we're smaller and sort of like, we, we meet in this little historic colonial meeting house kind of space. We rent space, but I, oh, cool. I've preached at mega churches and that's my dream is to preach at a place where there's a smoke machine, but it's well, I, I feel like they, they sell them cheap sometimes on like eBay and stuff. You could totally make your dream come true. I, I it's, don't, it's within reach, I think. I don't think it's in the cards for me. But like, I just don't hang out around with the right type of megachurch. Like, like my friends that like have megachurches are pretty like, tend to be a little more progressive evangelical types. And they're, huh. they would find that cynical, like, you know, and, and, and like cliche. So like, I just, I need, if any of our listeners out here are, are, are going to churches like that, Please invite me. I, I will. I will preach up a storm. But I, don't think, I, I feel like I try to take religion seriously. But, but I think you're right. I mean, I think that that's. Uh, I mean, that's. Uh, do you? I mean, do you think that's a problem? I mean, why not just have like? Well, there's a secular party and there's a religious party. I mean, is that? Do you think that that problematizes American public life in some way? Well. I mean, first, I don't want to give too much credit to any political party institution for representing religion or not, because I think there are plenty of Republicans who are both not that religious in a self-identified way or don't necessarily live up to the ideals of their religion. And I think the flip side is that there are plenty of people who identify as Democrats who are very deeply religious and care a lot about faith. Um, 
To me, it's a big question about the leadership of the two parties, where they see their constituencies, what kinds of positions they're willing to respect and embrace, and also just the level of knowledge and fluency that they have about the concerns of religious people, which, of course, are quite diverse. Um, you know, it's different to be a Muslim in Michigan than it is to be an evangelical Protestant in South Carolina. And I think it's upon, it's it's the responsibility of every politician, no matter what their party, to try to understand and be respectful of and, and be knowledgeable about these different kinds of religious concerns and communities because it's their job to represent the country. It's their job to represent people and all of their concerns and, and issues, and religious people are a big part of that. Do you think Democrats are are not as influential, at least in this season in public life, in part because of the decidedly sort of secular tone or, or tone deafness to religious voters? It's an interesting question. And I don't know that I can say one way or another whether that's the silver bullet on Democrats. You know, polls show that people, a, a large majority of Americans believe that Democrats are out of touch with their problems. Obviously, Democrats have uh, significant electoral disadvantages compared to Republicans, both on the state level and at the federal level. And, you know, I don't know that I would be willing to say, oh, yes, definitely, 100 percent, it's religion that's keeping them back. Um, but what I explored in that piece and, and what I think is true is this, that the Democratic coalition is uh, diverse, it is changing, and some of the ways in which it's changing really challenge this idea that it's a party of secularism. Um, you know, Black and Latino voters, for example, uh, tend to be quite religious, and African Americans in particular are staunch Democratic supporters. Their ways that their religion impacts their political views may differ from that of a white evangelical or even a white Catholic, but they still have that as part of their identity identities and potentially part of how they think about politics. So I think that's one big factor. Um, and another factor is that I just think in general, um, it gives credibility to Democrats to or to any politician. I don't actually want to make it just party specific um, to have religious literacy, um, to understand what the concerns of religious voters might be. Um, and I think, again, those sort of vary depending on who you're talking to and what the issue is. Uh, but I, I do think it's a credibility builder to sort of flip your question on its head. It's interesting, right? Like we have, I think, and this is not meant to be a partisan judgment in the least, but I mean, currently we have one of the most religiously illiterate presidents I, the most I can remember in my lifetime and definitely the most secular in spirit tone lifestyle that I can remember. And yet he, he has, you know, I mean, he has, I mean, it, it, you know, in, in the, in the primaries, it seemed like a lot of conservative evangelicals voted for people like Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio, but it seems like they've come home to Donald Trump. And, and I think I read a poll, some 81% or something of, of, of conservative evangelicals that are churchgoers or, or supporting Trump feel good about, his presidency. What, do you, what sense do you make of that? Uh, well, the 81% number is certainly one of the most cited. I think that's, or the, at least the statistic that I've heard and written about is 81% of white evangelical Protestants. And this might be people who have various levels of church attendance and also identify as that, even though that might capture a large range of denominational affiliations. Um, you know, I think it's a really challenging question to unpack. I think in a lot of ways, 
2016 is not a good example to generalize from because it was such a weird campaign and election. The choices that were presented, especially when it came down to the general election, were just so specific and bizarre. I mean, Hillary Clinton has been in public life for decades and has among, especially some of those white evangelical Protestant groups, uh, a track record that they don't like. They, they I think, have a, a deep Many, many people in that category have a deep and intense dislike for her um, from a number of different historical roots. And I think on the flip side, you know, Donald Trump, uh, there were many white evangelicals and more broadly uh, Christians who disliked him for a number of reasons. I think some of those people probably ended up grudgingly voting for him. And I think there are others who decided that actually he's what they're looking for in a president um, in terms of his willingness to appoint pro-life judges to this Supreme Court in terms of his promises to protect certain kinds of religious liberty, including, for example, making changes to the tax code and the Johnson Amendment, which restricts the way that pastors and clergy can speak from the pulpit. So I think there were some people who probably looked at the choices and said, I feel great about Donald Trump. I think there were some people who looked at the choices and said, well, I feel like I've got a vote and Donald Trump is the choice that's available to me. And then I think there were probably some who said, I feel totally alienated by this political process altogether. Together and there's no choice that represents me, and I feel totally stuck as a citizen. I think it's really complex and layered and very, very specific to this year. But I don't know. What do you think? I'm just glad I can say Merry Christmas now. <laughs> Macy's. I mean, I were, felt, you, were you scared before to do it? Oh, absolutely. I felt like I was going to be taken to a black site if I did it. You know, uh, like worse than Guantanamo. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I feel. Yeah, I feel like I'm. I, I, I'm probably. I, I don't ever feel very discriminated against as, as a, you know I, I actually find like you know if i'm in happy hour or something my wife and you know we meet new people saying i'm a pastor is one of the most interesting conversations <laughs> usually people are very intrigued like oh what's that i almost feel exotic um <laughs> mm, interesting that's really interesting is that with mostly liberal and secular friends or who find you exotic yeah I, yeah i yeah in general yeah i actually find uh most Maybe I, yeah, I, I, I generally do not feel hostility, uh, even to, with people that are in the nun category. Like I almost never run across like a, a Bill Maher adversarial atheist kind of person that's just like really antagonistic. And, you know, I just don't, I don't run across many people like that. I mean, once in a while, but in general, and I live in Metro Philly, it's a blue state kind of place and I don't ever feel, um, I, I, you know, it's interesting. Do you, do you think some of, um, some of the frustration in the middle of the country, how much do you think relates to just, I mean, maybe this is an overplayed trope, but, but there's something to it, right? The safe spaces, the censorious nature of certain academic places and combined with a group of people that are largely left behind or feel left behind in places like Rust Belt states. Do you think like, it's it's less religious stuff and more cultural and economic factors that that sort of draw people to Trump and make you know and 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 make people feel alienated from the political establishment in general. Mm. Well, I think this question of alienation, I love that word, and I love that you use that word because I think it's not just a way of explaining the Trump phenomenon. I think it's actually a really powerful way of explaining how a lot of people experience politics generally. You know, so for example, I don't think that you could claim that 
you know, most or all of the people who voted for Hillary Clinton feel no alienation from their political system or, you know, the people who on the left were discontented with their choices as well. People who had perhaps supported Bernie Sanders or didn't like any of their choices on the Democratic side. I think there are a large swath of Americans who feel both alienated from a two-party political system, alienated from a majoritarian culture, whether that's a majority white culture or they feel that the country is changing because it's demographically shifting or what have you. Um, And then, of course, I think economic anxiety and economic alienation are factors, although it's difficult to disentangle our assumptions about, for example, white working class voters and the sort of stereotypical narratives that rise up around them and the actual fact of economic anxiety or economic alienation. But certainly I think all of these are factors and they explain not just Trump, but I think more generally the experience that a lot of Americans have of politics. So there's an article in the New York Times, an op-ed piece by Robert P. Jones, who I didn't realize was a contributor for you all at The Atlantic. Yeah. And he, I really like his stuff, and I think the polling stuff his organization does is, is great. He talks, he opens up talking about G.K. Chesterton saying that America was a nation with the soul of a church. And by that he meant that, he said Chester meant that it wasn't so much a, a religion, like a particular religiosity, but the fact that the beliefs were enshrined in sacred texts like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitutions. And there wasn't so much this one national type like you maybe had you know, for Italians or French people or, or the English. And then he said, you know, the profoundness of the American experiment, he argued, was that it aspired to create a home out of vagabonds and a nation out of exiles, united by voluntary assent to commonly held political beliefs. And he goes on to argue that he worries that that's unraveling, like that, mm. that kind of, that we don't have a shared uh, civil religion. I mean, you actually have, have done some writing and interviewed somebody fairly recently about civil religion. Do you, do you see that happening, this erosion of civil religion? And does it, if so, does it worry you at all? Yeah, that's a really big question. And certainly we have worked with PRI on the past looking at some of their data about the uh, drift of some groups away from civic institutions, a sense of community, and also a sense of participation in uh, religiosity, whether that's attending church services or feeling identification with a particular religious institution, whether it's a religious minority or religious majority. Um I I do think this is a really big and powerful question. What happens to the United States as more and more people drift away from the institutions and gathering functions that have long been the center of American life? I think in America, that question is particularly religious, religiously inflected just because of the deep religious history and diversity of this country. But even if you're talking about secular things like going to PTA or going to soccer club or book club or bowling league or belonging to the Masons or whatever, these have all been institutions that have been at the the center of American life and have helped people find community and meaning. They've also been supporters of democracy. Uh, you know, whatever you might say about unions, union membership in the 1950s was much, much higher than it is today. And that 
membership reflected a sort of core democratic function, or at least uh, changed the nature of, of democratic life. I think the same is true of coalitional groups around bowling leagues. One of my favorite things about uh, sort of looking at associational life from the 1950s or before is that bowling leagues used to be this huge, huge institution that many people participated in, which seems funny to us today. It's almost like a joke. But I, you know, I think there's there's a there's a tie between the way that we form communities, um, just sort of on our own, and the way that we then turn around to vote, turn around to run for office, to run for city council, um, and the way that ultimately we agree to or want to participate in this project that is America. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's hugely challenging and complex and layered and twisty and has all sorts of cross currents and is absolutely consequential. Yeah. And that's like Putnam's book, right? Bowling alone. Like, you know, yeah. like yeah, yeah, yeah. community spot. And yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I'm trying to figure out where I found, heard this stat a couple weeks ago that for white, I think it's white. I'm trying to think of it as whites in general or white working class folks, whether or not you're uh, in some sort of observant religious practice has a big impact demographically or statistically on your income and your outlook on the world, like optimistic, mm-hmm. negative, you know, positive, or mm-hmm. a little more despairing. I mean, I wonder, you know, I'm thinking of like the Hillbilly Elegy, you know, book, you know, the thesis that that a lot of folks who are checking Christian, it's a national, it's more of a nationality that, that, you know, I'm not Jewish, I'm not Muslim, I'm not, I'm white, uh, and I, you know, and I'm for some kind of traditional values. But uh, they're, but you know, not part of deep formative religious communities. I mean, is that mm. you think that contributes to to the kind of landscape today? Especially, I mean, it seems like Donald Trump plays to that base in in, in pretty effective ways. I mean, you know, like things that like the, the, the powerful symbols, like the wall. You know, um, is that you know do those kind of demographic statistics make some sense of that? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think there's a big difference between Christianity as a nominal affiliation, as you've described, versus people who are actually church attenders. Um, The way that people identify doesn't necessarily say that much about the way that they're living out their lives, although obviously data only gets us so far in understanding what those people's inner lives are. There are all sorts of reasons why people drift from institutions or don't attend church. And so it's bad, I think, to be too quick to judge. Um, I think this question of whether America's identity as a putatively Christian nation is eroding is a really interesting one. There have been actually a number of conservative Christian thinkers in recent years who've written books on this. Russell Moore, who's the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention, wrote a book called Onward, I think it came out in 2015, that was basically saying that the Whiskey River style Christian, you know, the the Christians who will uh, will attend a concert where they sing God Bless America and then they follow it by Whiskey River, that, that kind of Christianity is going away and that's ultimately good, that convictional Christians should feel great about that. Um, and to Rod Dreher, who's a writer for the American Conservative, wrote in his book, The Benedict Option, which came out 
just this spring, has made an argument that Christians who are convictional and want to attend uh, services and want to create religious communities should lean into the fact that they have a distinctive identity that's set apart from American culture, that there is no way to be the majoritarian culture again, and thinking that that's going to come back as delusional. Um, I think this is a really interesting question because that sort of mealy middle of people who perhaps aren't that interested in religious attendance and community formation as part of their lives, but rather just have a nominal affiliation. I think there are great arguments to say that those groups are probably going to get smaller, especially as younger and younger uh, generations come up and don't have any religious affiliation in particular. The nuns, the N-O-N-E-S is uh, sort of a growing group. And I think part of the growth is in those people who one day in the 1950s might have said, you know, I'm a Christian, but only nominally so, and now just don't have any religion in particular. Um, I think this is going to change our country uh, in the next, you know, 10, 20, 30, however many years, I think it's going to change how we think about uh, religious political power and the interplay of different religious groups. Um, but I, th- I think it has a lot of dynamics to it. So not just as a journalist, but as a Jewish American journalist, how does Rod Dreher's Benedict call, Benedict option call fall on your ears? Like, do you, like, do you, does that? Do you think it's a good strategy? Do you think, uh, as someone who's been part of a a religious minority community, um, is that? I mean, do you like? How do you think about the Christian response to public life? I mean, do you do you do you think it's? Uh, I mean, do you think the because Christians are still a, a majority in in the country? I mean, although maybe a shrinking one. Do you? How do you think about Christians in public life? And, do you, you know, what ways do you think are constructive? What would you like to see? Huh. Um, well, I guess I should start by sort of editing the premise of the question a little bit. Um, so I don't think of myself as a Jewish American journalist. I think of myself as a journalist. And whenever fair point, I'm fair point. writing... Sorry. Yeah, Yeah. no, that's okay. Whenever I'm writing stories or reporting or whatever, you know, I think having a religious background can be helpful for attuning your ears or opening your eyes. But I strive in all things to be fair and to listen to people and try to learn uh, in an equal way. So that's sort of like one aspect. You do that Um, well, too, because I would have guessed that you were raised in the Christian tradition based on reading your stories. Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, so th- there you go. Just because you're, um, just because you're sympathetic and and fair. I mean, you know, incredibly fair. Not that anybody can't do that, but you 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 speak with the fluency of an insider. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and and then I think the second thing is, you know, insofar as I'm in a magazine of ideas, we make arguments. Um, I, you know, it's not that I, I'm not writing you know, dispatches that are in the standard pyramid style of a newspaper um, that, you know, sort of do your typical point A, point B, point A, point B structure. I I do make arguments in my work, but I think ultimately when I come at a question like this, you know, you're asking a sort of normative question, what would you like to see from Christians in public life? That's not really the kind of argument that I make or the normative claim that I make because I'm actually more interested in just understanding what the landscape is. Why is it that a Dreher perceives the world that he the way he does. What is it that makes him write from this perspective? Who is listening to him? Who is following him? What is the uh, sort of flow and exchange of ideas around his work? I think uh, you know the Benedict option is fascinating because you, as you've probably seen, it started just this huge conversation. It's gained so much interest and attraction. And I think that's partly because Rod is speaking into a really 
potent and and fireful set of questions and topics that people care a lot about right now. They're really timely. Um, and, you know, then there's the flip side of that, too. You know, what is Christianity that is not like what Roger describes? Or is there um, a worldview or perspective on the current state of American Christianity that sort of reads the situation differently? And I think that's an equally valid and engaging question. So all of that is, I think, one giant way of dodging what you asked me, but I hope it wasn't too unsatisfying of a dodge. It was an elegant and artful dodge. Thank you. <laughs> I actually wrote a response uh, on a website uh, that got a little bit of traffic to Ron to Ron's thing, the Benedict Option. So, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. You're right. It, it's it it is it is he's he's become a lightning rod because I think everyone's thinking about the questions, even if they don't like us answers or want to push back on them. Um, mm-hmm. Inter- interesting discussion fodder for sure. So in this um, piece that I was quoting before in the New York Times, I, I found this stat fascinating that, ba- that basically when you look at Republicans and Democrats, right, and how they perceive uh, basically things like discrimination, uh, Democrats tend to believe that any minority group faces uh I mean, Republicans rather on the uh, think that think that um, Christians and whites face roughly as much discrimination as immigrants, Muslims, and gay and transgender people, and only twenty seven percent of Republicans say blacks experience a lot of discrimination, mm-hmm. uh, while forty three percent say whites do, and forty eight percent say. Um, the same of Christians, and when and you look at the Democrats, it's just it's basically the inverse, right? Democrats don't think that whites and Christians are discriminated against, and they tend to think every minority group um, faces discrimination. Do you, I mean, that just seems like such an arduous uphill climb for constructive public life, doesn't it? Like, if we're, mm. if we're in this place where people uh, on a basic level think that the majority group, what, what, if we can't agree whether or not the majority demographic in the country faces as much discrimination as minority groups. Mm. I do think this is challenging. And one of the ways in which public polling can be the most helpful for, you know, public discourse and discussion is helping to lay down markers of perception. And this is one example of that. Asking people their perception of discrimination isn't necessarily a way of objectively measuring how much discrimination there is, but it does tell us what people think. And insofar as uh, this identifies a gap in understanding of reality. I think you're right. It's an impediment to having a conversation starting from the same terms and the same bases on public policy questions from what to do about hate crimes to how to think about immigration to anything else. I do think that the question of discrimination is extremely vexed because there are some forms of discrimination that are black and white totally identifiable, easy to put your finger on. Like, you know, the FBI reports hate crime statistics every year, and there are some examples of these that are beyond a reasonable doubt 
based on someone's animus towards Jews or someone's animus towards African-Americans or whatever. And that's discrimination sort of in a black and white way. I think a lot of what we refer to as discrimination actually happens in a much more gray zone. It's little experiences that people have when they walk into a store. It's the general environment of public policy or politicians making speeches that aren't necessarily out and out discriminatory, but maybe engage in dog whistles. It's also, I think, in this particular case, talking about the difference between Christians and other groups, white evangelical Christians and other groups and their perceptions, talking about Republicans and Democrats and their difference in their perceptions, a matter of ideology. So, you know, LGBT people would say that it is discriminatory for them to not have protections in hiring housing and public accommodations, which is the case in uh, roughly half of American states, slightly more. And white evangelicals would say that it's discrimination if they are forced to cater a gay wedding that they disagree with and have deep convictional opposition to. This, I think, is what makes the question of discrimination so challenging. Ultimately, it's a matter of perception of what your rights should be and where the rights of another group should end and ultimately how that should reflect into policy. And I think that accounts for some of this disconnect in how different groups view their own status in terms of discrimination. What do you think? What's the story that you've, or or the the subject matter that you have found maybe the most interesting or super interesting? Like, gosh, this is such a thing I've, I've grappled with and I'm going to keep grappling with. And what's the thing that like you're trying to get your head around? Like, what's the story you think for religion and public life that's like on the horizon and is not getting covered right now that, that needs to be? Hmm. I don't know that I can make a claim about under coverage. I do think that right now America is going through a series of seismic shifts in terms of the way various groups think about their identities and their relationship to politics. That is happening even among the most settled coalitions, and that's true of conservative Christians, it's true of people of color, it's true of religious minorities, whether that's Jews who are facing more intimidation and threats, to Muslims who also say that they're facing more intimidation and threats, and there's evidence that they are, of course. Um, You know, all of these questions of identity happen in subtle ways over time, the way that people and groups and communities think about themselves in relationship to a whole, those are so hard to track. And yet I think they're ultimately so important because they form the basis and the language through which people are operating in public life. And that has been one thing I've come back to again and again, especially since November with the election, is trying to understand some of these subtle shifts. You know, I worked on a story, for example, about Hindu Americans feeling differently about their status in America and also what kind of political activism they wanted to take on after the high-profile shootings of a couple of Indian American uh, immigrants and more broadly sort of this atmosphere that uh, the Trump administration has brought in. Um, That is, you know, one of these things that's so hard to get at. How is a group changing its perceptions of itself over time? But ultimately, I think that's where the action is going to be. You uh, you grew up in Tennessee, and now and you went to college in D.C. and now you work in D.C. and you work for a, a, you know a, a renowned D.C. publication. I feel like the trope 
you know, the narrative that gets tossed around, you know, the Washington bubble, right? Like it, you did not grow up at all in, or, it, you know, in the DC political and journalistic scene, right? And, and you were going to college around it. And now you work in DC covering politics and public policy and, and, and religion, things like this. Mm-hmm. Do you think, is, is what do you think is there truth to some of the Washington bubble stuff, especially from someone who's from the South, a red state, reddish? I think it's it's red, right? Oh yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's solidly red. Um, it, what do you see as truth in that kind of storyline, and what do you think, in your experience, has not proven true? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's but that's the subtle way that people buy themselves time, right? You you say you val you validate the question while you're desperately searching around in your brain for how you want to answer it. It's like the yes no yes, you know that they tell you to do in etiquette magazines. Hey, do oh you no, do, what is that? Oh, do you want to come to this party Friday? Yes, I'd love to. No, I can't because I scheduled a root canal for Saturday night. But yes, invite me in the future. The yes no yes, everybody feels better. I have never done that, which clearly shows that I am deficient in my manners. No, it shows, it shows that you have, you're authentic. <laughs> Maybe. Or it shows that I need to do better at scheduling my root canals on Saturday exactly, nights. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay. So to your question, I've now got a whole like 30 seconds of, of buy time. So I can come <laughs> up with my answer. Um, Let the profundity roll. <laughs> yes. You know, so here are a few things I would say. I would say that, number one, all places are diverse. There are different kinds of people everywhere. And even insofar as Tennessee is a red state, which in fact it is, it's overwhelmingly red. Within that category, there is a huge diversity of people, backgrounds, perspectives, whatever. People are not just reducible to their sort of majoritarian culture identification. And even within a majority culture, you know, Tennessee is very Christian, right? There's enormous diversity within that as well. Um, so that's number one, I would say, is uh, giving red states and blue states, but red states in particular, more credit for having just sort of variety and diversity and a human experience that's not just sort of reducible. Uh, the second thing I would say is that I do think there are aspects of Washington culture, elite culture, media culture that set apart the things that maybe seem of high concern in Washington and the things that seem of high concern in Tennessee or wherever down South, wherever, not in the coast. Um, and I think the great thing about journalism, the wonderful privilege about this as a craft is that it's our job if we're doing it well to try to break out of the mindset of within the swampy walls of the District of Columbia, what are the concerns and think more broadly and creatively about the concerns of the country writ large. I think talking to people in other places, going to those places, being from those places, going and moving to those places, being rooted in those places is really important for a magazine like The Atlantic because we are a national magazine. We are also trying to speak to the world and we can't just be parochial in the sense that we're concerned with the interests of Washington or New York or what have you. Um, so I, I think the divide is real. I think also the caveat I would add, the little asterisks would be that this difference can be easily narrativized and weaponized in a way that I think is 
damaging to political discourse and to sort of community building or neighbor outreach, uh, which is, you know, this idea of, you know, quote, quote, fake news, right? Or like the dishonest media or like the elites who want to whatever trash the real people. I think um, those those narratives are often most most frequently offered by people who have their own agenda or want to push so their they're, they're own points. They're prescriptive, not descriptive, right? Like they're not trying to understand things. They're trying to tell you how to think. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, and you know, again, that's not to undersell the difference because I do think it's there. I've perceived that. Um, I've experienced that, but I just think the way, the way we talk about that and react to it is also important. And is it a constructive way of talking about and reacting to that divide? Or is it ultimately about trying to create a wedge between different people of various religious backgrounds, various ideological backgrounds, various geographic backgrounds. And I have one last question for you. Sure. As a DC resident who's now living in the midst of the draining of the swamp, do you have like alligators and the bullfrogs, other amphibians like on your doorstep, like help the swamps being drained? Like, could I stay with you? Like I'll do yard work or help as a domestic worker <laughs> I, I sense that there's some sarcasm in that, in the <laughs> framing of the question. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, so far I have not ended up with any aquatic creatures out of the normal band of aquatic creatures at my house. But do if fish? I do, 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 you, do you have aquatic creatures? Like in an aquarium or something? Yeah. I don't. We have we have sometimes rats because that's a DC thing and like ants. Although my house is very clean, so it's not like we're some sort of cesspool of uh, you know uncleanliness and Mother Nature's creatures coming in to to chide us for our lack of putting our food away or something. But I, I would I would say in general, alligator free for now. I'll keep you posted if I see anything out of the the ordinary. Uh, Emma, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with me. You're a delightful conversationalist and I love your work and I encourage all of our listeners to read it at The Atlantic. Well, that is so nice of you. Thank you for making time to talk to me. I'll have you on again. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email. Or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And please do check out Emma Green's writing at The Atlantic. If you're looking to get great insights into how religion, politics, and public policy interact in our culture, there's no better place to start. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, fare thee well.